0: Support for this podcast comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, which helps local communities celebrate their history by providing grants for historic markers. As we approach the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, the Pomeroy Foundation invites you to commemorate the legacy of women's suffrage with a historic roadside marker. Recognize the people, places, and events in your community that made an impact on the voting rights of women. To apply for a fully funded grant or to learn more about the Foundation's marker programs, visit WGPFoundation.org.
1: Welcome to a New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Don Wildman, a New Yorker and explorer of all things history. The basis of this podcast is the New York State Museum in the state's capital of Albany. Established in 1836, it is the country's oldest and largest state museum. Within its walls, there are roughly one million cultural objects and more than 16 million scientific specimens.
2: All which help tell the remarkable story of New York and its citizens. The Empire State is a special place, and it can be argued its history is essential when telling the story of the United States of America. We hope to make that case through this podcast, A New York Minute in History. And by my side on this journey, to answer my questions and yours alike, is the historian for the entire state of New York. So, Devin, what is it about New York and New Yorkers that makes what happened within these 54,555 square miles so unique?
1: Well, Don, to answer that, I would paraphrase Columbia University's eminent historian, Kenneth Jackson, and say, but it happened in New York. From the Iroquois Confederacy through European contact, from the Dutch Fort Orange through New York's explosion of immigration and diversity, New York's history touches on all the major themes of America's history.
2: Our first episode focused on two heroes and their roles in World War I. Now the Great War seems a distant past, and for some it is. The armistice was signed about 100 years ago. But let's look at that date through another lens. In November 1918, women in the United States of America did not have the right to vote. On this episode of A New York Minute in History,
1: we'll explore how the Empire State served as the birthplace of the women's rights movement and acted as a linchpin for national equality efforts. And we'll look at related
2: issues still unresolved today.
3: There is a band of women, and two our man are manner born, emerging from the darkness past and looking toward the morn. Their mothers labored, waited through a night without a star. The morning shows a suffrage flag that bears a woman's star. Hurrah, hurrah, for equal rights, hurrah. Hurrah for the suffrage flag that bears
0: As in many woman cases, star. when New York leads, others follow. And that is even true today. So to have a place of significance, a state of significance, like New York was back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, when, when they went, it sort of telegraphed to the rest of the country that this is okay. And when you think about how significant that was, the whole concept of women having the right to vote started in Seneca Falls in 1848, when over 300 individuals, primarily women, but some enlightened men, gathered and wrote the Declaration of Sentiments and actually voted on the concept of having the ability to cast a vote and and, uh, determine their leadership. But it took 70 more years.
1: As New York's Lieutenant Governor, Kathy Hochul is the highest elected female official in state government. She served on a town board and as Erie County Clerk before representing New York in Congress and rising to the number two spot
2: in the state's executive office. New York and 22 other states have never had a female governor. And this is despite Seneca Falls in central New York being what many historians consider to be the birthplace of the women's rights movement. We
1: pick up the story in the late 18th century with Ashley Hopkins Benton, a senior historian and curator for social history at the New York State Museum.
4: Just after the, the revolution, there's this new idea of Republican motherhood where mothers are the ones who are teaching the new citizens, especially the boys. Um, But they began to say, well, we need more education if we're going to do this appropriately. Um, So that's where it it starts filtering in. And then in the reform movements that move uh, throughout New York State, including the abolition movement and the temperance movement, women are actively involved um, out on the lecture circuit for the first time, So they're starting to think about how to express themselves more clearly, what kinds of education they need to do on the matters that they're speaking on. Uh, And then there's the simple matter of their speaking before mixed audiences, which is considered an issue at first.
1: One of the first nuts to crack in the early 19th century had to do with married women's property rights.
3: Equal rights, our motto is we're loyal to the end, giving the ballot to the mothers. Hurrah, hurrah.
4: Um, So that fight really began in earnest in 1836. A woman named Ernestine Rose came um, following her travels throughout Europe. Uh, She was born in Poland, and she started the first petitioning campaign to the New York State Legislature to protect married women's property rights. At the time, if you got married, all of your property went straight to your husband, regardless of if you inherited it or you earned it yourself. Um, And after 12 years of various petitions going forth, uh, in April of 1848, New York State was the first to pass that law.
1: Just a few months later, in July
2: 1848, Seneca Falls would host the first women's rights convention. Formal planning began a mere two weeks before, over tea at the home of Jane and Richard Hunt in nearby Waterloo.
4: Um, And at that tea were a number of their friends, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and a number of Quakers, who included Lucretia Mott. And... Through their discussions that day, they decided it was time to actually sit down and have a more formal discussion of women's rights. Uh, They decided to hold a convention, and uh, they wanted it to happen while Lucretia Mott was in town, so they set a date just two weeks later. Um, And Martha Coffin Wright, Marianne McClintock, and Jane Hunt were all very prominent in the foundation of uh, the discussions of how that meeting was going to happen. Uh, They decided that they needed some kind of guiding document to... um, lay out their plans, lay out their thoughts and their concerns. And they looked to a lot of historic documents and ultimately settled on the Declaration of Independence, which they changed um, to be the Declaration of Sentiments. And it begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. And they took where the Declaration of Independence um, declared the grievances against the king by the colonists, um, they listed out the ways that women were grieved in society. So, in the home, in the church, their um, lack of access to the professions and to education. And Stanton herself said that um, elective franchise, the right to vote, was important for achieving any of those goals as well.
2: The first person to speak at the two day convention that drew some 300 people was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. As one of the preeminent leaders of the early suffrage movement, Stanton is particularly interesting in that her descendants would go on to become trailblazers of their own, including...
5: Colleen Jenkins, great-great-granddaughter of Elizabeth Katie
2: Stanton. A women's activist in her own right. We recently sat down with Jenkins in Albany, New York, about 200 miles east of Seneca Falls.
5: And not far from Albany is Johnstown, New York, and that's the seat of the family. And I think what's really important to know that Elizabeth Cady, that's a surname C-A-D-Y, Elizabeth Cady grew up in a soup of law. All around her was law. Her father was a lawyer. His law office was attached to their house in Johnstown. His courthouse, which is still active, was just down the road. And At that time, there weren't law schools. So basically, if you wanted to study law, you would clerk with somebody. And so they had law clerks attached to the father. And so Elizabeth grows up in this soup of law. And what's really important, the takeaway of this whole program is that Elizabeth Cady Stanton connected women and law. Mm -hmm. And from that flows the rest of her life
2: with a New York State Supreme Court judge as a father. Stanton's pension for equality started at an early age.
5: I want to tell you an interesting story. When Elizabeth was about 10 or so, uh, people would women would knock at their front door individually and say, I need to see the judge, Judge Katie, and discuss this problem I'm having. For instance, a woman was uh, working. She had kids. She had a husband. Uh, But one of the problems was that her wages were not hers, because once she got married, she had no legal right to contract for the wages, for her children. So uh, she would ask to see the judge, and Elizabeth would observe this as a child. She would go in and get consultation with the judge, consult with the judge, and then she'd walk out equally distraught, So I think as a child, you can understand fairness. You don't Mm -hmm. have to be sophisticated. And so what she planned to do is go back into her father's law office where all the law books were on the shelves, bookshelves, Mm -hmm. and cut out those nasty paragraphs that made women so unhappy. So Her father got wind of it, and he basically said, even if you cut out those paragraphs, these law books are throughout the state of New York. So what you have to do is go to
2: Albany and appeal to the legislators to change the law. When Elizabeth Cady was 25, she married abolitionist Henry Brewster Stanton.
5: What they did is they went to London to the first world anti-slavery conference. <laughs> How's that for honeymoon? And uh, interesting Henry was actually the secretary of this international conference um, and then there was also for instance delegates from the United States, for instance Lucretia Mott came from Philadelphia. she's a Quaker and she came and now how would you start? the first world anti-slavery conference. Wouldn't you talk about slavery and those issues? No, they talked about whether women should speak or not speak at the convention. And guess what they decided? Women shall not speak. And actually, to tell you, at the time, it was considered promiscuous for women to speak in mixed-gendered environments. So anyway... Lucretia and Elizabeth. Lucretia's older and wiser and more experienced, and Elizabeth is the wife, the twenty-five-year-old wife. Well, they start walking around London saying, "We don't have very many more rights than this the people of this conference, the enslaved people." So they decide. Then they're going to start the first women, and they're going to convene the first women's rights convention.
2: That stroll through London eventually led to the 1848 convention that etched Seneca Falls, New York, into the history books of women's suffrage. A few years later, Stanton
1: met Susan B. Anthony, and the two would go on to lead the movement in New York State and the nation for the second half of the 19th century. Hopkins Benton says Anthony was laser focused on women, obtaining the vote from the moment she got involved in the movement.
4: Um, They were really ideal partners in that they complemented each other very well. Um, Susan B. Anthony was not married, she had no children, so she had a tremendous ability to travel um, and she did so extensively for the cause, um, both around New York State and around the country and even internationally. Um, She had a very strong personality and was a persuasive speaker, Um, so those all lent her um, to suffrage travel. Stanton, on the other hand, had a large family. Uh, She was not able to be out on the road as much as she wanted to be, but she was a strong and persuasive writer, and she used that skill to her advantage, Um, so much so that there were times that Anthony was frustrated that Stanton had all of these um, things that she had to do in the home, taking care of her children, and she would come to Stanton's home and take care of the children and say, go write. You know, close yourself in a room. Go right. We
1: need this document. After the Civil War ended in 1865, there was initial optimism for universal suffrage for both African-American men and white women.
4: Out of this, the American Equal Rights Association was founded to fight um, for both of those causes. They actually had a meeting in 1866 in Albany uh, where Elizabeth Cady Stanton was a speaker as well as Frederick Douglass and a number of other leaders from both sides, including Lucy Stone, Charles Redmond, um, Parker Pillsbury, and the Reverend Olympia Brown. So at this meeting, they were discussing how can we make this happen constitutionally for all of us, and what should be the requirements for suffrage if we're not saying that it has to be white
2: men. But the cause for female suffrage is dealt a couple of blows with the passage of the 14th Amendment, which defined citizenship, and the 15th Amendment, which prohibited the denial of the right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude, not gender.
4: By 1868, um, the 14th Amendment is passed, and that's the first to add the word male to the Constitution. And so women's rights reformers were left to ask, are we even citizens? Where do we stand in this? Uh, And then by 1870, when the 15th Amendment is passed, They then again questioned where do we stand, where do we go from here? Um, And certainly they didn't feel like they had the same allies as they did before. Um, And as all of this was happening, as these amendments uh, were initially being introduced before they were even passed, there were discussions about who needed the vote first. Um, A lot of reformers were getting to the point of realizing that they weren't going to happen at the same time, that was just too much to ask of society. Um, So reformers like Frederick Douglass said that for African-American men, it's a matter of safety, and that needs to happen first, Um, while women had other arguments for why uh, women in particular needed the vote. And through all of that, African-American women are really left out. Um, They are not a part of either argument.
1: With the effort for universal suffrage failing, as far as female suffragists are concerned, they leave the Equal Rights Association around 1870 and form two national groups to push their cause
4: the leaders from New York State, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, left to form the National Woman Suffrage Association, and they kept their focus on the federal amendment. Um, even though they were disappointed in the results of the 14th and 15th amendments, they thought that it set a precedent and that they could eventually achieve a national amendment as well. Um, and they had help introducing one to Congress just after that. On the other hand, leaders from New England left to form the American Women's Suffrage Association, um, and one of their leaders was Lucy Stone, and they decided instead to focus on a state-by-state strategy.
2: While this division is happening mostly in the East, Americans living in the West are much more accepting of women's suffrage. Dr. Jennifer Lemack, chief curator of history at the New York State Museum, details how the West was won by suffragists.
3: We have heard the voice of freedom from that far-off western shore. We have heard the echoes calling as our fathers
6: heard of yore. In 1869, uh, the territory of Wyoming was the first to grant women suffrage uh, when Wyoming became a state in 1890. They brought women along with them. And then Colorado in 1893 and Utah and Idaho in 1896. Um, and if you, if you think about this, it's almost 50 years after the Seneca Falls Convention, and there are only four states um, in the Union that have granted women full suffrage. Uh, some historians suggest that Western men may have been rewarding pioneer women for their critical role in helping to settle the West, and others argue that the West had a more egalitarian spirit or that the scarcity of women in some of these Western regions made men even more appreciative that they were there. Um, Giving women the vote also could have helped encourage more women to come and settle there.
1: Back in the East, the disagreements that divided the suffrage movement during Reconstruction diminished as the 19th century progressed. The National American Women's Suffrage Association would go on to serve as an umbrella organization for hundreds of state and local groups.
6: Its main goal was to push for suffrage on the state level, theorizing that if enough states pass suffrage, the federal amendment would be inevitable. Elizabeth Cady Stanton served as its first president, and Susan B. Anthony served as its vice president. Uh, the New York State Women's Suffrage Association was established in 1869, The New York State Organization had the largest membership of any state suffrage organization, and it consistently gave the National Association the largest amount of money every year. Um, And then at the local level, there were hundreds of towns and cities across the state that had small political equality clubs and suffrage clubs. Uh, One of the largest was in Geneva, which was the Geneva Political Equality Club, They had around um, 360, 70 members, both men and women. And then the smallest politically quality club was in Binghamton with only 13 members.
1: Near the end of the 19th century, technology and innovation gave women,
2: who were largely relegated to housework and child rearing, more free time than ever before, particularly among the upper classes. Since women were mostly denied their shot at a college education...
1: They met with their peers and homes to develop skills like organization and public speaking as they worked to enact domestic reforms.
2: And near the turn of the 20th century, this network of women's suffrage groups across New York State would show its strength and influence. Through an effort to strike the word
1: male from the state constitution in hopes of granting women the right to vote. So in
6: 1894, New York held a convention to revise its constitution. Susan B. Anthony led the charge to secure a clause for equal suffrage in the new state constitution by a petition campaign. At this point, women didn't have the vote, so one of the ways they could exercise politically was to have a petition. So women across the state raised $10,000 for this campaign. Um, Headquarters were at Susan B. Anthony's house in Rochester. Susan B. Anthony was 74 years old at the time, And she spoke in each of New York's 62 counties, which was not an easy feat in 1894 or when you're 74 years old. So the women circulated 5,000 petitions across the state, and they were able to secure 300,000 signatures on their petition from both men and women. And then they had the idea that they should start working with other like-minded groups. So they also approached members of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, they approached labor unions, and they approached the local Granges to get their signatures on this petition. And it brought the signatures up to almost 600,000. Despite all their efforts, the amendment was voted down. 98 opposed to 58 in favor, but this campaign marked the beginning of a new modern suffrage movement. Despite this defeat,
1: the suffrage movement would take another leap forward under the leadership of Harriet Stanton Blatch.
2: Now, if part of that name sounds familiar, don't worry, it should. It's certainly familiar to Colleen Jenkins. Remember, the great-great-granddaughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton.
5: So her daughter, Harriet, is my great-grandmother,
6: and so she is the one who really follows in the footsteps. She was born in 1856. She was the second daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And uh, she was born in Seneca Falls. She attended Vassar College, and upon graduation, she traveled the suffrage le- lecture circuit with her mother and also helped her mother write the History of Women's Suffrage, Volume 2. She then moved to Europe for a year uh, where she met an Englishman named William Henry Blatch. The couple was married and they moved to England for 20 years. Uh, while she was in England, Blatch was heavily influenced by the power of the organized working classes and the British suffrage movement. Um, the British suffrage suffragists had much more militant tactics um, going on at this point in time than anything that was going on in the United States. Um, the British at this point were having parades outside, and they were having rallies where the um, American women were still meeting in the parlors with only groups of other women. In 1902, Harriet and her husband and family decide to move back to the United States and they settle in New York City. Harriet was ready to jump into the movement and looked around and realized that the movement had not changed at all since her mother was running the show years earlier. Um, so she set out to really to change that and to modernize the movement. So she and a small group of women in New York City began meeting, and she began to recruit working and professional women to the movement, and she started to employ public tactics like parades, outdoor meetings, and um, trolley car campaigns, kind of anything that would grab the press's attention. Uh, None of these tactics were endorsed, endorsed by the national organization, And so she decided to start her own organization, which was known as the Women's Political Union.
1: Harriet Stanton Blatch is noted for her understanding of politics, particularly the inner workings of the New York state government.
2: Which in the early 1900s was still heavily influenced by the Tammany Hall political machine in New York City.
6: Beginning in 1910, Harriet Stanton Blatch and her Women's Political Union begin a campaign to force the state legislature to pass a bill authorizing a referendum on suffrage. So she sets up offices in Albany, she hires a lobbyist, and she works with a small group of women to put pressure on the legislators. By the end of 1912, the Women's Political Union had persuaded the three major parties, the Democrats, Republicans, and the Progressives, to adopt a suffrage plank. On January twenty-seventh, nineteen thirteen, both houses signed legislation eliminating the word male and enfranchising every citizen of the age of twenty-one years. And there's this great image we have of Harriet Stanton Blatch and the Women's Political Union marching up Albany's Capitol Steps um, to get to obtain signatures from a majority of the assemblymen in an effort to bring the suffrage member to the assembly. The day after that, the New York Times quotes Harriet Stanton Blatch in the paper by saying, quote, we now lack only 13 of the constitutional majority of 76 and we'll get those before we go to sleep or we'll make the lives of these people miserable, end quote. Needless to say, Harriet won the campaign. But even more difficult than persuading the politicians to favor suffrage was organizing a movement that would convince the men of New York State to vote for suffrage.
1: Under leaders such as Carrie Chapman Catt and Syracuse's Harriet May Mills, the movement in New York is organized into the Empire State Campaign Committee in late 1913. The state was divided into 12 campaign
6: districts, each with its own chairman. Under each chairman were 150 assembly district leaders, and under this were 5,524 election district captains. So women and some men spread out Across the state in an effort to educate male voters about women's suffrage and earn their votes, including African Americans. A week before the vote, Harriet Stanton Blatch convinced Tammany Hall to stay neutral on the question of suffrage, giving Democrats in New York City the option to vote their own conscience. The 1915 campaign culminated in a giant parade of thousands in New York City down Fifth Avenue, organized by Cat's Women's Suffrage Party. Finally, on November 2, 1915, the vote took place. At the end of the day when the votes were tallied, suffrage lost by almost 200,000 votes. Mostly the liquor interest, large factory owners, and conservatives were responsible for the defeat, but with 42% of the vote in favor of women's suffrage, leaders immediately went back to work.
3: If the men should see the women going to the polls To put down the liquor traffic, need it vex their souls If we're angels, as they tell us, can we once suppose That all the men should frown on us when going to the polls We love our boys, our household joys, we love our girls as well The law of love is from above, against that we ne'er rebel no discharge of Christian women from the war with sin. At the polls with Gog and Magog must the fight begin. Since we Bible marching orders, need it fright our souls. Though all the men should frown on us when going to the polls. We love our boys, our household joys. We love our girls as well. The law of love is from above, against that we ne'er rebel.
2: Undeterred. New York's suffrage campaign holds a mass meeting in New York City two days after the referendum defeat.
6: Women across the state mobilized again and repeated the exact same steps that they did for the 1915 campaign. They enrolled members in suffrage organizations. They filled petitions with over 1 million women's signatures. They gave speeches. They held conventions. They organized parades. The two main things were different between the first and the second campaigns. First being that the women at this point were all veterans to the cause. They knew what to do. They knew how to raise money. And the second was that the United States declared war on Germany in April 1917.
1: Dr. Susan Goodyear, a lecturer in history at the State University of New York at Oneonta and the co-author of the book Women Will Vote, expands on this thought.
7: When the war begins, and even before the United States is involved, but there is a Need to find out what the resources are, in the state, in the country, and so there's uh, surveys that are taken and people knocking on doors and saying, "All right, what skills do you have to offer?" So if men have to go, where can women fit in and take mm-hmm. over for the men, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, the suffragists, were jumped right on that wagon. Mm-hmm. They wore their suffrage ribbons their suffrage buttons Mm -hmm. they had their suffrage literature with them and they went door to door getting information from the people about that was pertinent for the government but Mm -hmm. then also getting being able to say and by the way have you thought about women's suffrage here's some information you can talk to your husbands so the more people they were able to get in touch with and they were so organized at that point Virtually everyone in the state. Now, I don't know if that includes African-American families and homes because they're generally kept out of most of the mainstream movement. So these immigrant men then could make their own decisions now that Tammany no longer had some kind of decree that they had to go against it. Suffragists also made sure that every single soldier and sailor had an absentee ballot if they were serving outside of the country, which they were by the early part of 1917.
6: World War I presented women of New York with an opportunity, and Carrie Chapman Catt came out and said, if you aid the war effort, they will reward us with the vote. And that is exactly what happened when President Wilson endorsed suffrage as a wartime measure. So on November 6, 1917, New York men went to the polls again, this time voting in favor of granting women the right to vote in New York State. Suffrage won by 100,000 votes.
3: Of all the songs that have been sung within the states and nation, there's none that comes so near the heart as Uncle Sam's relation. Yankee Doodle is his name, U.S.'s honored station. Red and white and starry blue is Garb on each occasion. Uncle Sam set up his house, he welcomed every brother. But in the haste of his new life, he quite forgot his mother. Now his house is up in arms, a keeper he must find him. To sweep and dust and set to rights, the tangles all about him. Uncle Sam is long in years and he is growing wiser. He now can see t'was a mistake to have no misadvisor. His nephews now have got the reins and looking o'er their shoulder. Shout to lonely Uncle Sam, goodbye, old man, forever. Now we're here, dear Uncle Sam, to help you in your trouble. And the first thing best to do is making you a double. Yankee Doodle will be glad to join with us in spreading the news abroad or all the land of Uncle Sam's great wedding.
2: Finally, almost 70 years after the Seneca Falls Convention, New York state women earned the right to vote. Holding 47 electoral
1: votes, New York's approval of women's suffrage was vital to the push for a federal amendment granting women the right to vote throughout the United States. And with the help of leaders from New York's movement, the 19th Amendment prohibiting states and the federal government from denying the right to vote to citizens on the basis of sex is adopted in 1920.
2: Less than three years after New York did so.
1: Remarkably, only one of the original 68 signers of the Declaration of Sentiments in 1848 lived to see this day. Charlotte L. Woodward Pierce.
2: Although she was born in Waterloo, New York, she spent the last 60 years of her life in Philadelphia. Frail and losing her sight in her early 90s, she was not able to vote in 1920 or 1921. There is no record that she ever did.
3: Have a perfect nation will march from near and far to glory neath the stars and stripes, it shall bear the woman's star. Hurrah! Hurrah! For equal rights, hurrah. Hurrah for the stars and stripes, it shall bear the woman star.
1: While New York led the way for women gaining the right to vote, the Empire State also took another crown. As long
6: as there were women working to get suffrage passed, there were also women working to prevent it. And this was because of the the separate sphere ideology. Men operated in the public sphere of politics, commerce, law, and economics, while women operated in the private sphere of domestic duties, child-rearing, and religious education. Uh, with this line of thinking, suffrage would diminish a woman's purity and potentially harm family life. Um, anti-suffragists believe that the men in their lives, husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, uh, would look out for their best interests when they went to the polls. So um, New York State, because we have to do everything the best and the biggest, had the most active and organized anti-suffrage activity of any state in the Union, creating the New York State Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage in 1895, and the national organization was organized in New York City in
2: 1911. My, my. Margaret, she become a uh, suffragette,
4: my heart is the one she breaks, she wear the pants, that killer a romance, all day, feel like a dilly poor old whop, oh, to my eyes come the big drop. no more I uh, eat the forget since my Margaret become a uh,
5: suffragette, ah.
7: And it does. It takes a real long time. It takes three generations of women to get the right to vote, a right that we take, often take, for granted today. A lot of the reason for it taking so long has to do really with who women were thought to be. Women were thought not to be citizens, they were thought to not need an individual voice. They weren't seen as individuals. They were seen as a daughter, a wife, a mother, but never seen as an individual.
1: Goodyear explains that this thinking didn't mean that women in the 19th century weren't considered important. In fact, she says women were deemed essential to the entire social fabric of the United States.
7: But the idea is that women were domestic, that their role in the state was critically important because they were mothers and wives. They kept the home safe and comfortable. That's also critically important. The state, and as time goes on throughout the movement, in the estimation of a lot of people, way more than we would think, the idea that if women played roles like men, they would become like men, and that would utterly destroy the foundation of the nation-state because they're critical to the smooth operation of a state. People identified gender by what people wore, and what people did. So, if you went out to work, you would wear pants, you were a man. If you wore skirts, of course, you were a woman. This extended to things like a man shoots a gun, a man has military duties, a man has responsibilities to support the family, those kinds of things. So, it goes the gamut. And so, with suffragists, they argued that that's unimportant and unnecessary in a lot of other arguments. Anti-suffragists said it's critical to the health of the nation state. They always thought of this as being all the way up to the highest level of power, that there are these one group of people and it's easy with women because women have babies this one group of people that's the stable stabilizing force
1: 19th century women also filled critical roles outside of the home their jobs included many areas addressed by today's government agencies such as taking care of orphans and the mentally ill as well as nursing
7: women had the power as these and the anti suffragists really celebrated that this is where women's power lies hmm. If we become like men, we lose something. We lose the power to change the world this way.
1: And while the leader of the anti-suffrage movement was not from New York, she attended Vassar College in Poughkeepsie and raised her family in the Empire State.
7: The woman who was the president of the New York State movement and then went on to become the president of the national movement was a woman named Josephine Jewell Dodge. She was born in Connecticut. Her uh, father was governor. Uh, he was also post uh, governor of of Connecticut. He was uh, postmaster general for a while. He was an ambassador to Russia for a while. So he was, and he was very. Elite. What's fun is that he and his wife, Josephine Jewell Dodge's mother were pro suffrage and entertained the suffragists, mm. and so I tell you that for for you can see that the president is is elite yes, but she grows up in an elite family that believes in women having the right to vote. They entertained um suffragists when they came to visit. Yeah. It it's it's awesome, <laughs> and but Josephine Jewel Dodge was married to one of the most wealthy men in New York State, had five sons. And yet she believed that women had other responsibilities that should not include politics and at the same time is going out into public to say so. She herself said, the movement is difficult because we're a negative movement. We are trying to prevent women getting the right to vote. And therefore, our challenge is greater than those who are trying to convince the public that we need the right to vote.
3: I have a neighbor, one of those not very hard to find. Could know it all without debate And never change their mind I asked him what of women's rights He said in tones of fear, My mind on that is all made up Keep woman in her sphere
1: Anti-suffragists in New York really start to organize following the state's 1894 Constitutional Convention, when an amendment aimed at striking the word male from the document fails. Though she points out membership was in the thousands, Goodyear says anti-suffrage strength is difficult to calculate because the associated organizations did not keep the best records and since the movement counted membership plus what they called apathetic women among their ranks. As World War I ushered in President Wilson's declaration of suffrage as a wartime measure, the events overseas also distracted anti-suffragists from their fight at home.
7: What they began to do was they began to raise money and donate it to the United States government. They did this with the war with Mexico, which was earlier on. They did this again. By the October of 1914... Annie Nathan Meyer was a playwright. She was a, an, an, uh, uh, an author and a playwright. She wrote a play called The Spur, and all of the proceeds of that went to the Red Cross. They were very quickly connected with the, the Red Cross in the United States um, government. And they said, we will donate everything our time, our resources, to helping with what was called war preparedness. Mm-hmm. We'll get ready. We will do what the government wants us to do, which is very characteristic of anti-suffragists, dutiful. Mm-hmm. Duty to husbands, duty to country, duty duty to their their state. And so they were so distracted by this.
1: As the 20th century continues and more states grant women the right to vote, The anti-suffrage movement in New York and beyond slows.
7: Because there was a group of anti-suffragists, it had already had started moving towards the national level anyway. Josephine Jewell Dodge gets out in the summer of 1917, and another woman, Mary G. Kilbreth who is a late comer to the anti-suffrage movement, eventually takes over after a short period with our New York State senator from Geneseo. Um, His name was James Wadsworth, Mm -hmm. Jr. He was the senator from New York State, was always virulently anti-suffrage. And his wife, Alice Hay Wadsworth, takes over... In the right in that nineteen seventeen to nineteen about nineteen nineteen. And then she steps out and then Mary Kilbreth comes in. Mary Kilbreth was a vehemently anti suffrage woman. It's startling to read about her and hear what she said what they essentially do is they go to the national level and they work to prevent women getting the right to vote there the organization itself devolves if that's even the right word into a committee of about five women and they are they become congressional watchdogs the publication deteriorates they're much more interested in preventing any kind of amendments to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. They're also behind fighting the 19th Amendment. Mm-hmm. They say that it's, um, that it's not constitutional. The majority of anti-suffragists, though, they vote. Mm-hmm. It's their duty. And their responsibility, once their government has decided that that's what they're going to do, that the men have decided that that's what they're going to do. And you can even read obituaries from the, the woman who was the president of the uh, anti-suffrage organization in uh, Syracuse, mm-hmm. for example. She, the first thing she did once she was enfranchised was to go and vote, and she actually did. She voted for prohibition. Mm. The anti-suffragists become a congressional watchdog organization, and they keep representatives that visit Congress on a regular basis. Mm. Their goal was to prevent any kind of amendments to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And they saw that's how they focused on the 19th Amendment. And so once the 19th Amendment is passed and signed in um, 1920, almost immediately a couple of New Yorkers, a man named Charles Fairchild and Everett P. Wheeler, who both happened to have been lawyers, um, they brought a case that actually made it all the way to the Supreme Court that said that the 19th Amendment was unconstitutional. The courts did not hear it and did not make a decision on it because neither of them were elections officials. They didn't have, as far as they were concerned, they had no right to bring the case, Mm -hmm. but it was challenged as being unconstitutional. The anti-suffrage organization, I count it ending in 1932.
3: Oh father, where is mother? She has not been home for weeks.
5: His father lad. the tale is sad. She's down at suffrage hall. She's gone to fight for women's rights. Why there's a bugle call.
2: But since sexual equality remains an issue today, the women's rights movement clearly didn't end with the passage of the nineteenth Amendment in nineteen twenty.
1: That's right, Don. Throughout the twentieth century, suffragists sought to correct what they saw as injustices in a number of arenas, including healthcare, education, and business. And again, a member of a notable bloodline in the women's suffrage movement is on the forefront. Harriet
5: uh, had a daughter. <laughs> Remember, I said she was um, married to an Englishman, so my her daughter was my grandmother, and her name was Nora stanton blatch deforest barney
2: colleen jenkins grandmother nora was born in 1883 in england when nora moves to new york city with her mother harriet stanton blatch she gets a crash course in the women's rights movement from her grandmother
5: she sits on the lap of elizabeth katie stanton in new york city by now new york city elizabeth is living on 94th street on the west side of new york city Nora sits in the lap of Elizabeth and learns the right and wrongs of women. So we start educating people early on. And uh, Nora actually has a propensity. Oh, she gets a very good education at Man and she likes. She's very good in uh, mathematics and algebra. And uh, so, actually, what she does is she decides she's going to go to Cornell University. And she's going to go where no woman has gone, and that is civil engineering.
1: With a degree from the Ivy League School in Ithaca, New York, Nora goes on to become one of the nation's first female civil engineers, working on New York City's water supply.
2: But Nora was denied full membership into the American Society of Civil Engineers. She sued the organization in 1916, but wasn't inducted into the group until 2015, more than 40 years after she died and a century after she applied. But in some form of justice, Nora has been reincarnated. And once again, she's working to provide clean water to New York City.
1: Nora, a TBM, a tunnel boring machine, more than 470 feet long and weighing in at 2.7 million pounds, is creating a bypass tunnel through the lower Hudson Valley.
2: Jenkins was on hand for the machine's naming in September 2017.
5: And I'm going to end with a suffrage saying, it is forward into the light. And what I want to do is adapt it to today for tunneling, forward into the light at the end of the tunnel.
2: (laughs) And Nora's daughter, Jenkins' mother, Rhoda would follow her family's lineage in pushing the boundaries. She became an architect.
3: Women have reared all the sons of the brave. Women have shared in the burdens they gave. Women have labored your country to save. That's why they're wanting to vote. So it's, oh dear, what can the matter be? Dear, dear, what can the matter be? Oh dear, what can the matter be when men want every vote?
1: After passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, other women's rights issues began to blossom. In 1923, Alice Paul, who had worked on the federal amendment and created the National Women's Party, presented federal legislation called the Equal Rights Amendment.
2: Jennifer Lamack of the New York State Museum says Paul realized suffrage would not guarantee equality of the sexes.
6: She did this on the 75th anniversary of the Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls. And the ERA has been contentious since its inception. Women like Eleanor Roosevelt and Frances Perkins, who you wouldn't think would be against an ERA, um, were because it could remove the protective laws that helped working women, such as limited hours, limited working hours, minimum wage, and the prohibition of night shifts. Fast forward almost 50 years, and in 1971 both houses approve the ERA, and it goes to the states for ratification. So Congress imposes a nine-year time limit for ratification, and this gives the opposition time to gather support. Um, Head of the anti-ERA campaign in the 1970s was a woman by the name of Phyllis Schafly, and during this time, there are some states that actually rescind their vote to the ERA, um, and their biggest arguments are that if the ERA passes, women could be drafted, mothers could lose custody of their children, there could be no alimony in the case of a divorce, and there would be no single sex bathrooms. The amendment never got the required 38 states needed to pass. Since 1982, the ERA has been reintroduced into Congress in every session and has yet to be ratified into the Constitution. Currently, there are 37 states in favor of the ERA. Nevada approved the ERA just last year in 2017, and Illinois just approved it on May thirtieth, two 2018. So there is a scenario whereby once the third and final state approves the amendment, Congress could bring the amendment
0: back for another vote, propelling it forward. It is appalling to me that in this day and age there's still resistance to having an equal rights amendment. We are left off of the uh, early declaration, the Constitution, and many other places where the word women should have shown up, showed up with men, and that's what the women at Seneca Falls were pointing out as being a real problem. But it's astounding to me that it's taken this long, and we still don't have that in our country.
1: New York's Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul argues women's rights are not yet where they need to be in the 21st century.
0: We have to continue fighting for our right to choose, and this is something that women cannot take for granted, particularly since... a a decision by the Supreme Court, an act by Congress, the president, any one of them can continue this assault on women's rights, which we're experiencing now. So those are the movements of our time to protect what we have.
2: Having children and raising them, what some consider to be the traditional roles of women, were
1: practices that some suffragists thought were weakening the women's rights movement all the way back
2: in the 19th century. The responsibilities and time commitment that come with having children can create inequality for women in today's business and political sectors.
1: Ashley Hopkins Benton of the New York State Museum says, even in the 1800s, some women's rights reformers believed a growing family held women back. It is mostly
4: impacting poor women um, to the highest degree. It impacts women's ability to access education, um, their ability to work outside of the home, which becomes a much bigger issue at the beginning of the 20th century um, when poorer families really need two incomes to support themselves. Um, And of course, it impacts women's ability to become politically engaged. Um, So Margaret Sanger and her sister Ethel Byrne see this issue and um, they want to have a way to get more information to women on how they can plan their families. At the time, um, there's a desire to limit family size, but it's very hard to get information, um, in part because of the ComStack Acts, which prevent certain information from going through the mail. Um, And contraceptives, although they exist, they're not as bountiful and they are very expensive. So again, that's impacting poor women. Um, So Sanger and Byrne set up the first birth control clinic in the United States in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. It's a very diverse uh, and very poor neighborhood, and they seek to get women access to information about contraception and contraceptive devices, and they are promptly shut down. Um, And through the various court cases involving that and also some of their publications, um, they start to chip away at the U.S. government and the idea that women should have access to this information.
1: The debate over reproductive rights saw a resurgence in the 1960s and 70s. In Roe v. Wade, the U.S. Supreme Court disallowed many state and federal restrictions on abortions in the United States.
2: Yet abortion continues to be a hot-button issue today. The modern women's rights movement has also included exposing, punishing, and preventing sexual harassment and assault, what has become known as the Me Too movement. A warning that the following audio may be
1: offensive to some and is not meant for young listeners. NPR has learned that disgraced movie mogul Harvey Weinstein is expected to turn himself into the New York Police Department tomorrow. Weinstein's anticipated surrender comes after a months-long investigation into accusations that he sexually assaulted numerous women. And good morning everybody,
5: welcome to Today and Hoda's here with me at this morning because this is a sad morning here at Today and at NBC News. Just moments ago, NBC News chairman Andy Lack sent the following note to our organization. Dear colleagues, on Monday night we received a detailed complaint from a colleague about inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace by Matt Lauer. It represented, after serious review, a clear violation of our company's standards. As a result, we have decided to terminate his employment.
3: Imagine feeling like you have no power and no voice. Well, you know what, Larry? I have both power and voice, and I am only beginning to just use them. All these brave women have power, and we will use our voices to make sure you get what you deserve. A life of suffering spent replaying the words delivered by this powerful army of survivors.
2: Good afternoon. I'm David Muir. We're coming on the air at this hour because there is breaking news in Bill Cosby's sexual assault retrial. There has been a verdict. The comedian, now 80, has been found guilty on all counts. He'd been accused of drugging and assaulting a woman at his Philadelphia home. Again, guilty all counts. Moments ago, that panel of seven men and five women, after deliberating for 14 hours, came back with the verdict. I've got to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even know what. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy.
1: The Access Hollywood segment featuring Donald Trump was recorded in 2005 and released publicly by The Washington Post on October 7, 2016. On November 8, 2016, Trump was elected president of the United States.
2: The inauguration of the controversial real estate and media star on January 20th, 2017, was met with opposition from many, including women's rights activists. Among those in the Washington D.C. crowd donning the so-called pussy hats, knitted pink winter caps, was Colleen Jenkins. With an unmatched bloodline of female activists, Jenkins undoubtedly had one of the more unique points of view of those gathered at the U.S. Capitol.
5: What I found incredibly objectionable is a person standing taking the oath of the presidency of the United States on top of the Lincoln Bible with the same hand that he celebrates grabbing the genitalia of women. Mm -hmm. To me, that's absolutely repugnant. And uh, so this is a revolution that we're going through now. It's just not acceptable to do certain things, Uh, and I think that there's a lot of fallout now, and perhaps everyone will evolve to a higher level, but to take away the dignity of the Lincoln Bible by putting that right hand on it uh, was why I wore my pink hat.
2: The day after the inauguration, women's marches took place in Washington DC, New York City and across the globe. Millions of participants, both women and men, gathered to support equality, reproductive rights and other issues. Mary DeChristopher of Ulster Park was among those gathered for a sister march in
1: Poughkeepsie, New York, about 85 miles north of New York City.
7: We march for women's rights and human rights, that's why, because I don't want what progress we've made in the past hundred years to go backwards.
1: Women's marches were held again a year later in 2018.
2: As we near the end of this episode, it seems natural that we would circle back to Colleen Jenkins, a woman whose family has spanned the entire women's rights movement in the United States from the early 1800s to today.
5: What I appreciate about knowing these generations in my family is I can plot the evolution of America by name, and everybody's left something, or well, as I say, provided shoulders, I've tried to raise the ceiling.
2: And now Jenkins is trying to raise stone monuments honoring her bloodline and the women's rights activists who have paved the way for her and others.
5: Actually, I'm working with a group down in Central Park in New York City, and that's been in existence for 150 years, 850 acres. And when you cruise around that park, there are about 20 famous men. Daniel Webster, you know, uh, Robert Burns, Christopher Columbus. But let me tell you who the females are, okay? Alice in Wonderland. Mother Goose. A witch. Just a generic witch. Uh, So the point is that we said, hey, wait a minute, we live in the 21st century. This is one of the world's greatest public forums. You must have real women represented. And we chose Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and the women's suffrage
2: movement. The sculpture is expected to be unveiled in August 2020 to mark 100 years since the adoption of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And though
1: it's been nearly a century since women gained the right to vote in America, the nation's political bodies are still not representative of the fact that more than half of the U.S. population
2: is female. Like many women who do hold political office, New York's Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul encourages women young and old to throw their hats into the ring.
0: Because in this day and age, to know that we still have not progressed very far in terms of actual representation, when you look at us in comparison to the rest of the world, Out of 142 countries, we rank maybe number 73 in terms of women's political empowerment. I mean, we don't have a female leader. We have not had one compared to many countries that have, but even in our legislatures, New York State, um, progressive state, we like to think, and it is, Mm -hmm. but why are only 25 to 27% of our state legislators women? Members of Congress, it was 20% when I was there, it's now 19% members of Congress are women and in places of uh, chief executive officers and governors and lieutenant governors, you could sit all of us around a table. There's so few today. But not just there, school superintendents. I meet with teachers and school superintendents and talk about how there has to be a better pipeline because 77% of people who work in in education, teachers, administrators, uh, principals at the lower levels, that's the pipeline for school superintendents, but only a quarter of school superintendents are women. So I constantly encounter places where women's voices need to be heard, whether it's in the private sector, in the business world, in boardrooms, in the halls of power in Washington, and in Albany, in our city councils. And I think that we have to continue forging ahead with aggressiveness. I mean, we cannot wait any longer.
2: As stated, the top political office in the land has still not been held by a woman. In 2016, Hillary Clinton represented the best shot to date, for a woman to be elected as President of the United States.
0: Tonight, we've reached a milestone in our nation's march toward a more perfect union. The first time that a major party has nominated a woman for president. I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday, someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now.
3: We'll have a perfect nation, we'll march from near and far, to glory neath the stars and stripes that shall bear the woman's star. Hurrah, hurrah, for equal rights, hurrah. Hurrah for the stars and stripes that shall bear the woman's star.
1: Thanks for joining us on the New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian.
2: And I'm Don Wildman. Stay tuned to wamcpodcasts.org and the New York State Museum website for more episodes.
1: A New York Minute in History is a production of the New York State Museum, WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Archivist Media.
2: Support for the project comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. It is also sponsored by a Humanities New York Action Grant with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. A special thanks to New York's
1: Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, Colleen Jenkins, Dr. Susan Goodyear, as well as Dr. Jennifer Lemack and Ashley Hopkins-Benton of the New York State Museum
2: for all of their help. Until next time, Excelsior.